Time for swordplay. Alex, last week, the American Humanist Association, an atheist outfit, presented, uh, excuse me, protested what they called an unconstitutional prayer breakfast at a high school in Georgia. Man, Nick, these atheists are not messing around. You know what? I heard that in preparation for the protest, they gathered together on a weekly basis, and then after, you know, sharing a meal together, they would have a keynote speaker who spoke to their values and encouraged them to keep working. At the end of their meetings, they would each donate some money as they were able to continue to cover the cost of their operation. And as they uh, departed and wished each other well and shared resources for combating religion, they always ended their meetings by declaring how evil organized religion is and how they must continue to oppose anything that resembles it. <laughs> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, we're digging into the prayer of Manasseh. That's right, the prayer of Manasseh. And, uh, you know, at first I thought, ah, this is a book from the Apocrypha. Ah, not so fast. This is actually a book from the Old Testament Pseudopigrapha. So we're going to cover it, though, because it has found influence and favor throughout the uh, ages and especially within church history. So, Nick, why don't you talk to us for a little bit about who was Manasseh? What, what Manasseh are we referring to? So, <clears throat> if you want to see the life of Manasseh, it's recorded in 2 Kings 21, verses 1 through 18, and 2 Chronicles 33, verses 1 through 20. He was a king of Judah. He reigned for 50 years, or 55 years. I think that's the longest reign, if I, I so. remember yeah. correctly. Um, the Bible says he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He engaged in all of the abominations of the nations, including rebuilding idolatrous altars, worshiping false gods. Even in the temple of Yahweh, they were worshiping these false gods. He offered his own sons as sacrifice to these false gods. So that's child sacrifice. Gross sin. Grossly wicked. And he consulted the dark arts through mediums and necromancers. And as goes the head, so goes the rest of the body. Um, he led the whole nation astray right. through his sin. And for his many gross sins before Yahweh, he was taken into Assyrian captivity in Babylon, uh, his own personal Babylonian captivity, you might say. And while he was there, he repents with great contrition. He prays that God would have mercy and grace, that God would forgive him. God is greatly moved by his prayer and restores Manasseh back to Jerusalem, where he commences a reformation campaign of the religion of Judah. Despite his best efforts, though, the people, they still go after idols. But for the rest of his life, it seems Manasseh was thoroughly monotheistic, going very much after uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel. So that's a bit about Manasseh, and you say? Well, it's interesting. When you compare 2 Kings 21 and the parallel account in 2 Chronicles 33, you might notice that 
Second Kings gives no hint of repentance, but that detail is found only in Second Chronicles. And you know, I don't know why the author of Second Kings would choose to leave out the repentance of the most wicked king in Judah's history, <laughs> but uh, you know, my guess would be maybe there were mixed feelings about Manasseh's repentance. You know, was it genuine? Uh, was it enough? Obviously, it wasn't enough to change the course of the nation for very long anyway. Um, and anyway, at any rate, uh, the author of Second Kings decided to be completely silent on the entire ordeal. So that's an interesting uh, cross-reference with your parallel account there, Nick. And I thought maybe, um, since it is a shorter account and we're covering uh, really a shorter text today, Nick, why don't you uh, read for us Second Chronicles 33 so that we can get a frame of reference for uh, the things it says about Manasseh. Yeah, sure thing. <clears throat> uh, so Second Chronicles 33, Manasseh was <clears throat> 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his, his father Hezekiah had broken down. He erected altars to the Baals and made Ash, uh, Asheroth and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of Yahweh, on which Yahweh had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh. He burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh destroyed before the people of Israel. Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, Yahweh brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with chains of bronze, and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of Yahweh his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it around Ophel, and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of Yahweh, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of Yahweh, and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of Yahweh and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to Yahweh, their God. 
Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel and his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the asherim and the, the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house. And Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, as Manasseh, his father, had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh, his father, had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before Yahweh, as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. Um, Alex, you're right about the, the differences between Second uh, Kings and Second Chronicles. And I have heard that um, one of the explanations is that the king's accounts are written as an explanation for why the exile happened. There's lots and lots of sin. Uh, whereas the Chronicles, probably written after Kings, are more of a, a theology of restoration. Um, why they've come back to the land, perhaps. Uh, we repented. God was gracious. And so so just different purposes in writing could be an explanation for the differences in Second Kings, Second Chronicles regarding Manasseh. <clears throat> yeah, that's certainly possible, Nick. And within the passage that you read, it said that Manasseh's prayer was recorded uh, in the uh, Book of the Kings of Judah, in the uh, Book of the Seers, and uh, yet we don't have those books, um, don't have that prayer, and yet here we are sitting in front of a prayer called the Prayer of Manasseh. And so the question is, do you think that Manasseh actually wrote what we have known as the prayer of Manasseh. Yeah, uh, you referenced there Second Chronicles uh, thirty-three eighteen. We read at that time the at the time of the composition of the book of Second Chronicles. There was a copy of Manasseh's prayer in two locations. A book called, in my English standard, the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Other versions may say uh, Annals, and also second in the Chronicles of the Seers. Now, whether this was the same prayer, which we now have uh, in uh, the Apocrypha, that's disputed. Uh, in fact, there's a lot about this little prayer that is disputed. The author, the original language, was it Hebrew or Greek? Uh, date of composition, they can narrow it down to about the last two centuries B.C., but anything more specific than that is um, speculative. So to answer your, the question directly, probably not. Um, our earliest copies are Greek and Syriac, or Syriac, and there are no known copies in Hebrew, which is the language in which the prayer would have originally been composed. So did Manasseh write prayer of Manasseh? Probably not, is what I'm going to say. And you say? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, what we have is the prayer of Manasseh was probably not actually written by Manasseh. Uh, and this is a good time to point out that the prayer of Manasseh is technically not a part of the Apocrypha. Uh, the Apocrypha is typically considered a collection of books that are found in the Septuagint, which the prayer of Manasseh is not found in the Septuagint. The prayer of Manasseh is found in Codex Alexandrinus, 
Um, but that is only included as an appendix to the book of Odes, and we'll talk about what the Odes are here in a moment. But the prayer of Manasseh is actually considered a part of the Old Testament pseudopigrapha, since it attributes the writing of the letter to the pseudonym of King Manasseh. So just a little bit of insight into how do you tell what people are considering apocrypha and what people are considering pseudopigrapha. And Nick, you did mention there for a second about the date of the letter uh, or the prayer of Manasseh when you thought what we have was written. What do you? What, what was that again? Yeah, uh, like I said, uh, it's disputed, but the best guess, um, Metzger and De Silva, for example, they put it sometime from like 200 BC to 50 BC. Right. Um, again, anything more narrow than that to narrow the dates even more is uh, kind of speculative but that's that's what i found <clears throat> yeah that's what i found too and it seems that the range of dates that you mentioned uh is due to the reasoning that since the writer based the prayer off of the account in second chronicles then it has to be written after second chronicles and uh the prayer is also found though in early christian literature called the didascalia which was written in the third century a.d so the prayer of Manasseh has to be written before then. So that's the starting point for narrowing down a time range of composition. And then other things are taken into account, uh, like its original language and um, cross-comparing uh, the way in which those original languages appear to other contemporary uh, documents. So, yeah, sometime between uh, 200 B.C., 50 B.C., I think that's a good guess. Now, Nick, how does the prayer of Manasseh, which we'll read here in just a minute, how do you think it relates to the rest of the Bible? Uh, a couple of things that stood out to me in, in my reading. First of all, verse 7 um, of the prayer of Manasseh, which is it's only 15 verses, so it's uh, not very long. But uh, verse 7 says, you are, according to the New Revised Standard, you are the Lord Most High of great compassion, long-suffering, and very merciful and relenting at human suffering. Uh, that sounds uh, very much like it could be, a, if not an illusion, a quotation from Exodus 34 right. and verse 7, uh, verse 6, actually, um, which is the self-revelation, the self-declaration of Yahweh's nature and his character. Um, it says uh, there that uh, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God mo merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness. Um, also very similar to Jonah. I'll talk about that more uh, in a few questions. But um, also they mention, and it's mentioned in the very first verse, uh, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're all from Genesis, uh, from the Bible. Um, in the New Testament, one thing I found interesting is uh, the word unsearchable in verse 6, yet immeasurable and unsearchable is your promised mercy. The word there, unsearchable, um, other translations have uh, immeasurable there in that place, but um, that is actually found in a couple of Paul's letters, Romans 11, verse 33. There it's about God's ways being unsearchable. And then uh, Ephesians 3 and verse 8 about the riches in Christ being unsearchable or immeasurable. And so uh, 
could be an illusion. It just could be language. You know, Paul spoke the language too. But anyway, those are a couple of, of things that I found. What did you find? Yeah, I think whoever did write the prayer of Manasseh was a very good Bible student. They knew their Old Testament really well. And the prayer of Manasseh has several touch points within the Old Testament. Obviously, with Second Chronicles 33, right, there's going to be a lot of parallels there because mm-hmm. that's the uh, inspiration for writing the prayer to sort of fill in the gaps with imagination of what, what would have Manasseh said so beautifully that would have moved Yahweh to forgive him. So you also have uh, other moving uh, prayers of repentance and f- asking for forgiveness that the prayer of Manasseh is similar to, like David's uh, prayer in Psalm 51. Um, the theme in the prayer of Manasseh of repentance, especially when you see repentance as a gift from God to the sinner, that's a strong theme that continues within the New Testament as well. Uh, I was thinking of Acts chapter 5, verses 30 through 31. Uh, Peter, along with the apostles, he says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So again, this idea that the fact that God gives people the opportunity to repent, that's seen as a gift, something he grants them. And that is very much uh, in line with the theme of the prayer of Manasseh. So Nick, what do you think about the prayer of Manasseh and the influence that it has had on Christian thought throughout church history? Yeah, so you mentioned the uh, second or third century uh, Syriac work, um, Didascalea, um, just an early Christian instruction manual, and prayer of Manasseh was included in that. That is, is eventually incorporated into what's called the Apostolic Constitutions, a fourth or fifth century Christian instruction manual written in Greek. Um, prayer of Manasseh was used also as a liturgical source. Uh, it was incorporated into, I think you mentioned the Odes earlier, you know, the early Christian hymnal. That dates around the 5th century A.D. Uh, it was used in sermons as an exhortation for repentance. It was used as, uh, held up as a model, an example of repentance as well. Also an exhortation for prayers for forgiveness. I also read, it's in the Book of Common Prayer, or at least it's been incorporated into the Book of Common Prayer. Um, I had trouble finding that uh, that reading, but um, that's that's what I've heard. Is it's also included, in, which is you know that's used by a number of different uh, high church folks in their liturgical exercises, and so um, prayer Manasseh has had uh, some influence uh, throughout church history. Right. Uh, what say you? Yeah, the odes. That was a collection of prayers compiled by the early church, and it's just a a sampling of of things taken from the Old Testament, but also from the uh, Septuagint version of Daniel, because it includes the prayer of Azariah. We covered that in an earlier podcast. Uh, It includes prayers from the New Testament, and then it also includes the prayer of Manasseh, and an early Christian hymn called the Morning Hymn. And so that uh, collection of hymns and prayers, that was a part of Codex Alexandrinus, which is, I think, from the 4th or 5th century A.D. And so 
yeah, Prayer of Manasseh seems to always find a little niche somewhere within the church uh, each generation. And though not canonical, uh, the Prayer of Manasseh, it, it just continues to find interest within the church even to today. And uh, it seems that the, uh, the church, Christians, they have received the Prayer of Manasseh maybe more readily uh, or have been influenced it more so than the Jewish communities over the centuries. And so rabbinic Judaism has known of the Prayer of Manasseh, the copy that we have today, uh, but it hasn't been as influential on that side. Um, so I thought that was interesting, thinking about why Why is that? So let's uh, talk about... Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so Alex, um, our readers may be getting... Anxious, eager, wanting to read Prayer of Manasseh, where where can they read the Prayer of Manasseh? Well, if you have a copy of, uh, let's see, Charles Worth's um, Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, he's got uh, two translations in that one, one that he calls an idiomatic translation and one that he calls a literal translation. And I really like... That's, Go ahead. And that's in Volume 2, right? That's right, Volume 2. And I really liked the idiomatic translation. And... Uh, yeah, it's hard to keep track of which volume these things on. I own the digital <laughs> copies in Logos Bible software. So if you have the paper ones, then yeah, volume two is where this one is. You can also find the Prayer of Manasseh in your Lexham English Septuagint under the Book of Odes, chapter eight. Or if you have a new revised standard version, uh, it should be in there as well. Any other places you could think of, Nick? Uh, the revised standard, the old revised standard has it as well. Um, I see. The if you're working with a 1611 King James version, I believe the apocrypha are included in that. I, I think Prayer Manasseh was included. I'd have to double check that, but I think uh, also you could probably just Google it. I'm sure it's out there on the uh, internet. So um, I think we should take a moment just to read the prayer. It's very short, and that might give our audience, uh, if they don't have access to it, just a quick frame of reference. So I'm going to read from. The uh, version I liked best from Charles Worth, his translation, his idiomatic translation from the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, Volume 2. So here's the prayer of Manasseh. O Lord, God of our fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their righteous offspring, he who made the heaven and the earth with all their beauty, he who bound the sea and established it by the command of his word, he who closed the bottomless pit and sealed it by his powerful and glorious name. You, before whom all things fear and tremble, especially before your power, because your awesome magnificence cannot be endured, none can endure or stand before your anger and your fury against sinners, but unending and immeasurable are your promised mercies, because you are the Lord." long-suffering, merciful, and greatly compassionate, and you feel sorry over the evils of men. You, O Lord, according to your gentle grace, promised forgiveness to those who repent of their sins, and in your manifold mercies appointed repentance for sinners as the way to salvation. You, therefore, O Lord, God of the righteous, did not appoint grace for the righteous, such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those who did not sin against you, but you appointed grace for me, I who am a sinner, because my sins exceeded the number of the sands of the sea, and on account of the multitude of my iniquities, 
I have no strength to lift up my eyes. And now, O Lord, I am justly afflicted, and I am deservedly harassed. Already I am ensnared, and I am bent by many iron chains, so that I cannot lift up my head. For I do not deserve to lift up my eyes and look to see the height of heaven, because of the gross iniquity of my wicked deeds, because I did evil things before you, and provoked your fury, and set up idols and multiplied impurity. And now, behold, I am bending the knees of my heart before you, and I am beseeching your kindness. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned, and I certainly know my sins. I beseech you, forgive me, O Lord, forgive me. Do not destroy me with my transgressions. Do not be angry against me forever. Do not remember my evils, and do not condemn me and banish me to the depths of the earth. For you are the God of those who repent. In me, you will manifest all your grace. And although I'm not worthy, you will save me according to your manifold mercies. Because of this salvation, I shall praise you continually all the days of my life. Because all the hosts of heaven praise you and sing to you forever and ever. To that, I'll say amen. (laughs) That's right. That's rich. What a good prayer, even if it's not... Uh, Holy Spirit inspired or part of our canon, I could see why this prayer would have uh, had influence and favor in the hearts and minds of Christians throughout the generations. So, yeah, Yeah, let's talk uh, about the the prayer now. So, talk to us a minute, Alex, about the structure of this prayer. Well, it has uh, three or four main sections. I kind of see it as four. I got that from uh, De Silva. The first section is invoking the Creator God. And then the second section is a confession of sin. And then the third section is asking forgiveness. And then the fourth section is praising God, sometimes called a doxology. Yes. Uh, what stood out to me was the double confession followed by the double petition for forgiveness in verses 12 and 13. Um, you mentioned three or four full divisions. Your boy, Charles Worth, he divides it into three main parts. There's the invocation. Uh, verses 1 through 7, the confession, verses 8 through 10, and then the entreaty, verses 11 through 14. So, Also note the unique statement about Yahweh found only in this prayer, that Yahweh is the God of those who repent. Yeah, good now, stuff. Now, obviously, that's, you know, that's a truth that can be picked up in other verses, but it's not stated like that anywhere else but here. Very good. Um Nick, why do you think Manasseh would appeal to Yahweh as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there in verse 1? You know, we can connect this to uh, the divine self-disclosure I mentioned earlier in Exodus 3 and verse 6. That's where God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think that may be the connection there. Uh, What do you think? You know, I think uh, you're right, and I think also the impact of that kind of statement you know it just it goes back to israel's history israel exists only because of those patriarchs abraham isaac and jacob Uh, yahweh he took one man from the nations after babel he made for himself a new nation and so he made a covenant with abraham confirmed that covenant through isaac and jacob and this distinction then between people groups between israel and the nations uh, that necessitates also the distinction between israel's god and the gods of the nations And the premier distinction about Yahweh that Manasseh will list first in his prayer is that Yahweh, uh, Israel's God, is the creator of heaven and earth. 
and therefore uh, the inference is that the other gods are not. They are not the creators. And that would be quite the statement for someone, especially like Manasseh, who was repenting of gross idolatry. Hmm. So what else do we have? Verse 3 talks about that God, he shackled the sea. You shackled the sea by your word of command. Alex, what does it mean for God to have bound or to have shackled the sea by his word? You know, contextually, Nick, uh, I think verses 2 and 3 are about Yahweh creating heaven and earth. And when we open to Genesis 1, we see that when Yahweh created, first there was nothing but darkness and a watery chaos. You remember it says God was, his spirit was hovering over the waters and he said, let there be light. That was day one. And the formless water needed to be contained. Chaos needed to be put in order. So Yahweh created a container. That's what heaven and earth are. It's a container for all that water. The cosmology of the ancient Near East was that of three tiers. We've mentioned this before in other podcasts, but as a reminder, they saw the universe basically as heaven, earth, and under the earth. And all three tiers, in their view, contain water. But the water is separated by other created things, like the firmament in heaven that separates the water from above from the water below. And uh, the land on earth that separates the waters that were gathered together from the land that was gathered together. And there you have creation day two and day three. The interesting part to me is how it says Yahweh bound the sea. It says it was bound by his word. Lowercase w, but I kind of wonder if we should see this as his word, uppercase w. You know, John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing has come into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. See that light, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There's lots of rich creation imagery being brought out in the prayer, and as we see is brought out later on in John's gospel, John chapter 1. So I kind of argue for that, that how did God create and bind the sea and bring order to the chaos? It was through Jesus. So um, what do you think, Nick? Uh I think that's right on the money. There are a couple of other places uh, that came to my mind that uh, it could be possible allusions, like uh, the flood in Noah's day, the fountains of the great deep. They burst open at the beginning, but then they're closed up at the end. And, of course, God would be the one who did that. Genesis 7, right. verse 11, also 8, verse 2. I also thought of Exodus, um, where God caused the waters, the floods, to pile up and stand up in the heart of the sea. Right. Uh, Exodus 15 and verse 8. Um, but no, I think uh, it probably is the creation uh, narrative in view here. I think of Job 38, verses 8 through 11, which talks about uh, that God shut in the sea with doors. Um, he set bars and doors, verse 10. He said, uh, Thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. So, yeah, probably creation in view there. Um <laughs> Well, at any rate, the flood and the exodus are both um, theologically heavy with uh, creation themes because of the the story bound up with those events and what God is doing in each of those events. So there's definitely relevance there as well. Let me go to the 
Lexham English Septuagint for this next question. Verse 3 talks about how he closed off the abyss. And uh, you closed off the abyss. You sealed it by your awesome and honorable name. Um, So, Alex, talk for a minute about what does it mean for God to have sealed the bottomless pit, the abyss, by his name? Yeah, I mean, this question, it's really just a continuation of what we said about God having bound the sea by his word. Uh, You have a little bit of Hebraic parallelism parallelism going on there, even though it's not in Hebrew originally, but still, parallelism. Contextually, we're still talking about the beginning of creation, the creation of heaven and earth, Genesis 1. Uh, But here we're getting a little into more than what Genesis 1 tells us about what happened on day one. They're already existed darkness and this darkness was spoken of like some kind of material thing it reminds me actually of the plague of darkness upon egypt during the exodus it said that the darkness could be felt and that's really uh kind of creepy to think about but (laughs) that was the plague it was so heavy that it could be felt and since the bottomless pit in the ancient near east cosmology the hebrew cosmology Since it is the furthest point in the cosmos from which one could be from Yahweh, it's appropriate to think of this place as total darkness and a place that Yahweh separated in creation. Um, The abyss, the bottomless pit, it exists within the third layer of their cosmology called the underworld or often stated as under the earth, which would be the realm of the dead, Sheol or the Greek Hades, uh, the place of disembodied spirits. In that realm... There existed a, uh, a prison, for lack of better terms, in its deepest recesses, and that prison was called the pit. In Greek, it was called Tartarus, as we saw in Second Peter chapter 2. And speaking of Second Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 and uh, the Old Testament pseudopigrapha book, First Enoch, there are evil angels chained up in that pit. It's like a supermax spirit prison. Yep. So again... Though the interesting part to me, uh, beyond the cosmology, is how Yahweh sealed up the bottomless pit. It was by his name. And again, that's lowercase n for name, but I wonder if we should be saying it was by his uppercase n name. The name of Yahweh, that was a common phrase in the Old Testament used to talk about the physical and visible manifestation of Yahweh. We see that in Isaiah 30, verse 27, Psalm 20, verses 1 and 7, Deuteronomy 12, verses 5 and 11, otherwise known in other passages as the angel of Yahweh, or as the Christian might say, the pre-incarnate Jesus. In Judaism, this was the second Yahweh figure and uh, was uh, understood and accepted part of Jewish doctrine until uh, Christianity started saying that second Yahweh figure is actually uh, didn't just look like a man anymore. He actually at a point in time, became a man, and that man was Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so that's when they uh, started stepping away from that doctrine. Um, but that is that's very interesting. So by his name, by his word, that is by Jesus, all things were created, put into order, darkness was sealed away in the bottomless pit. Any thoughts on that? Uh, just one connection again to the Exodus. Exodus 15, verse 8 ends with the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. That was another connection that I made in addition to the creation stuff you had talked about. So Absolutely. Well, and I think we mentioned in the book of Joel how the Exodus was uh, a moment of a new creation where... 
God created for himself a new people by bringing them through the chaos waters that he split apart and brought the, the people safely through into salvation. So lots of, lots of interconnections. Nick, uh, verse 7 has uh, two parts, 7a and 7b. In this first part, there's an interesting phrase that says, God repents over the evils of men. Right. That's kind of strange. What does that mean, Nick? So my uh, New Revised Standard Version has, uh, you relent at human suffering. Um, now this this phrase, it could be another callback to the account of Noah, where God regretted that he made people, Genesis 6.6. 6. Of course, with that episode, God did not relent in bringing disaster. Or it could be uh, a reference, again, to kind of the larger Exodus account, where God relents from disaster upon Israel because of the intercessor, Moses, Exodus 32 and verse 12. Now, he's just pulled from the beginning of the verse, verse 7. He's just pulled from Exodus 34, verse 6, and that self-revelation, that self-declaration of God's character. And so it could be a reference to that general section, that that general episode where Yahweh is going to wipe Israel out in chapter 32 for us, but then he relents. Um, And so perhaps the author of Prayer and Manasseh just has that whole section of Scripture in mind as he's writing. Uh, In all likelihood, though, what's interesting is this could be an allusion, if not a a quote, from Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2. Yep where Jonah, he indicts God as uh, being uh, gracious and merciful and, and, and all that. But also, he says, you relent. I knew that you relent at disaster, at destruction, because God had not brought uh, destruction upon Nineveh. And... Uh, you relent at evil here. It's uh, phrased just a little differently, but the touch points are such that it just seems there's a very strong connection there, for me at least, uh, that uh, the author of the prayer of Manasseh had Jonah in mind there. And God, he did relent at Nineveh. Uh, he did not bring uh, destruction upon that city. And so perhaps the author here, assuming the character of Manasseh, is saying, look, if is this thing scalable, right? You were you were merciful on a city. Would you be merciful upon me, an individual? Right. <clears throat> no, I think those are uh, very likely allusions being made there. In the second half of the verse, though, connected to that question, then, is if God repents over the evils of men, if he relents over uh, the punishment that uh, someone would deserve, Does that mean, Nick, in the Old Testament, are you telling me in the system of law and works that people in the Old Testament were actually saved by grace? Well, no, that's just New Testament stuff. (laughs) Psych! (laughs) Of course, of course, salvation is always according to God's grace. Um, There's so much grace in the Old Testament, you can't even see the law. All right, maybe that's an overstatement, but at least God is gracious even under under the law. Um... And uh, if again, if God relents at disaster uh, on a large scale, like a city, or even on a small scale, like a like an individual, then 
certainly that's that's God's grace on display. And I think as you were reading in Charlesworth, uh, he uh, he had used the word grace. Uh, my translation had said goodness, but grace, and I like that because that's exactly what is going on here. This uh, this author, assuming the character of Manasseh, is seeking the grace, the favor that comes from God. And that, by the way, that didn't even um, touch on other aspects in the Old Testament, like the self-disclosure, um, the, the self-revelation of God's character. He says, I am, one of the aspects is gracious. Um, Noah, to make that connection there, he found favor. Another word for favor is? Grace. That's right, yeah. grace, exactly. So, so yeah, there's all kinds of grace in the Old Testament, um, for sure. That's right. Well, in the next verse, as he begins to uh, talk about his need for repentance and why that's uh, not something the righteous need, they don't need to repent, um, he says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob um, did not sin against God. And now, Nick, in verse hmm. 8, do you think that's really true? Did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob really never sin against God? Well, uh, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never sinned, someone needs to inform Moses because... <laughs> He wrote Genesis, and all three of these patriarchs are portrayed as flawed in in the book of Genesis. Sex, lies, favoritism, it's, it's all there and recorded in Genesis. Um, backing off of that, even the whole Bible affirms that all people everywhere sin. And just see, especially in Romans chapter 3, Paul has an extended discussion where he pulls quote after quote after quote from the Old Testament to talk about sin. And there are, there are none who do righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 verses 9 all the way to 23, the culmination of the argument being all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This seems to have been um, an intertestamental development that there were, uh, there was this idea that was floating around that there were some people, notably the patriarchs, who never sinned. And uh, Charlesworth, in his uh, the second volume where he has prayer of Manasseh, uh, one of the footnotes um, he cites several pseudepigraphal works that assume this, that assume there were individuals who never sinned. But um, no, they did. They <laughs> they did sin. <laughs> yeah, they did. Well, another possibility for interpreting the, let's see, the verse there, verse 8 in the prayer of Manasseh, is it may not be referring to sin in the sense of every wrongdoing, but mm. rather the sin of breaking fidelity with Yahweh and going after other gods, which the patriarchs never did. They were flawed, but they were loyal. And this would align with righteousness accounted to Abraham for exclusive trust in Yahweh. You know, because of Manasseh's idolatry, it's almost as if he had become like one of the Gentiles. In fact, I think it says in 2 Chronicles 33 verse 9 that he actually was worse than the pre-inhabitants of the promised land that were wiped out. And I wonder if that's why this prayer keeps finding a place within the churches throughout history, because as you know, churches are primarily made up of Gentile converts. And so maybe that's why this sort of feels more, I don't know, relatable to the, to the Christian than it might to the Jew, especially over the ages. Hmm. 
we have a uh, statement here in verse 10 where Manasseh talks about being in chains. And the question is, do you think, Nick, he was in literal chains? What do you think about that? Well, Second Chronicles 33 verse 11 does specifically mention chains. He's bound with chains and taken off over to Babylon. Um, so it could be. However, this is, uh, it seems like it's poetry, poetic language. And so Manasseh, he likens his sins to this burden, uh, this, uh, the guilt of his sin. It's like iron fetters that are just weighing him down. It reminded me of Hebrews 12 and verse 1, where sin is likened unto a weight that needs to be cast off so that we might run the race with endurance. And so... Um, I'm going to lean toward uh, a more metaphorical understanding of the the chains here in verse 10. What do you think? You know, I think it's funny how sometimes there are these moments in life where something that is physically happening to you just so happens to perfectly reflect your spiritual condition as well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, think about uh, the Apostle Paul, right? He uh, was blind when he encountered Jesus, but then... He was healed, and he could see, and that was his conversion. And I believe the uh, modern vernacular is the phrase, Manasseh had a <laughs> come-to-Jesus moment, right? Nice. <laughs> so, that's, that's sort of what happens sometimes. The, the physical and the spiritual um, are kind of lining up just right to help you see and learn. Verse 10, Manasseh says, I have provoked your wrath. Alex, did Manasseh intentionally provoke Yahweh to anger? You know, it appears so. And uh, Manasseh, he didn't commit all of those evils while ignorant of Yahweh or of the history of Israel. I mean, he was the son of one of the few great kings, Hezekiah. (laughs) So here he is, Hezekiah's son. Yeah, I think he knew what he was doing and it was on purpose. Second uh, Chronicles 33, verse 6, it makes it sound like Manasseh acted to provoke Yahweh to anger intentionally, and so it is here in the confession portion of the prayer of Manasseh, verse 10. Why would Manasseh then be so high-handed in his sinful actions? Uh, why didn't he walk in the ways of his father Hezekiah? The text doesn't specifically say, but I imagine that there may be a multitude of reasons. Here are some possibilities that I thought of. Maybe he wanted to rebel against his daddy, Hezekiah. Hmm. Or maybe Manasseh was angry at Yahweh for only preserving his daddy's life 15 more years when Hezekiah became ill. You know, when Hezekiah died, uh, Manasseh was only 12 years old. So maybe he was an angry teenager that Yahweh only extended his life that much further. Got a lot of angst. Yeah. Or maybe... Uh, Manasseh knew of the prophecy that was uh, given against Manasseh for showing off all the treasures of the kingdom to uh, foreign Babylonians. There was a prophecy that all of their treasure then because of that, and even some of Manasseh's sons, um, or Hezekiah's sons, even some of Hezekiah's sons would be taken away to Babylon. So maybe Manasseh knew of that prophecy, and he was like, well... If we're going to lose our treasure and take, be taken away to Babylon anyway, <laughs> maybe we might as well entreat the other gods instead and see if they can help us. That prophecy, by the way, is in 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 12 through 21. You know, who knows why? Uh, doesn't say, but we do know that it was intentional. So we can't claim ignorance. It's not an accident. Well, some good, good theories there, though. 
Well, Nick, what do you think it means when Manasseh says that he is bending the knees of his heart in verse 11? Yeah. Um, so it seems like this is a figure. <laughs> our knees don't really have – our hearts don't have knees. Um, <laughs> but it, it is – the idea is that of uh, depth of feeling, depth of emotion, just the core of his nature is – uh, humbled. It's not merely an external where he's just you know going through the motions, getting on his knees. It's the knees of his heart, right down to his core being that is uh, that is humbled. Right, and this is probably uh, the most or one of the most memorable phrases uh, within the prayer of Manasseh. I bend the knees of my heart. It makes you think of um, what we talked about in Joel, where it says, "Rend your heart and not your garments." That's right. Or when David says in Psalm fifty-one. Uh, a contrite uh, heart and a a broken heart and a contrite spirit this is what you desire, not sacrifice. Yeah, very, very well worded, very moving, even through translation, still very moving. Do not condemn me to the depths of the earth, verse uh, 13 says. Alex, talk for a minute about what are the depths of the earth. Yeah, that's the underworld. We uh, talked about that earlier in the podcast. It's the realm of the dead. It's the dis- realm of disembodied spirits. Uh, that's what dead people are. Their spirits have left their body uh, permanently. The bottom of a three-tiered cosmology, that's what we're talking about. Manasseh knows that there are terrible things under the earth awaiting him should he not be forgiven before he dies. I just want to remind our audience of Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus. You might want to go back to uh, Luke and read that. Is that Luke 15, I believe? Uh, right? 16. 16. Luke 16. Thank you, uh, Mexican lexicon. Always there to <laughs> back me up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, verses 14 and 15, what will happen, uh, according to Manasseh, if Yahweh forgives him? There will be a manifestation of God's goodness and salvation, he says in verse 14. Um, worship and praise are going to emanate from Manasseh, verse 15 says. Um, and you know, it's just general enough for us to not know if Manasseh anticipated a release. Did he anticipate he was going to be set free once God forgave him? Right. Don't know, but we do know he says, hey, you're going to show you'll be good, you'll save me, and I'm going to worship you because of it. Yeah, it's, it's the incentive that he says, to again, to change God's mind, to move him to forgiveness. Uh, forgiving someone like Manasseh, that would be a huge statement to God's grace and thus the knowledge of Yahweh and all the land. It reminds me of uh, Paul's statement about himself, right? That uh, he was the chief of sinners, and therefore in him the grace of God is made known. Um, forgiveness on Manasseh, he says, wouldn't be wasted. He would continue to bear fruit with repentance. And I'm sure that uh, there's a gospel sermon in there somewhere. Nick, verse 15 then Manasseh says he's going to praise Yahweh, but he says uh, the host of heaven are praising Yahweh. What's the connection there? What do you think? Well, because that's what uh, angels do, right? They worship God. Um, 
They were doing it at creation, worshiping God when he made everything. Job 38, verse 7 talks about that. Right. The morning stars saying the sons of God. Um, they continue to do that in God's throne. Isaiah 6, verse 3 is an example of that. Holy, 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 Lord, uh, God of hosts. Um, the whole is full of your glory. Um, and then that's what they're doing even right now, it seems. Revelation 4 and 5, there's a picture of that. There's all these creatures in heaven that are worshiping God in the throne room and all that. Um, I also thought as we were, um, as I was reading Second Chronicles 33, there was a lot of mention of how he worshiped the hosts of heaven. And so it, it could be, hey, well, what was I doing worshiping them? They worship you um, right? kind of thing. But uh uh, what do you think? Yeah, Manasseh says that uh, because the heavenly hosts worship and praise Yahweh, so will he. And I think there might be a larger worldview issue at hand. Basically, uh, they believed in uh, in the ancient Near East and in, in, definitely in the Hebrew culture. And you see this in the New Testament pop up with the prayer uh, that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. But basically the phrase, as it is in heaven, so on earth. And that was the paradigm in which... Uh, God ordered the universe. And when this paradigm was violated, uh, it resulted in chaos. So in other words, when people sin or don't properly worship, then heaven and earth are out of sync. So by Manasseh proclaiming that he'll line up his worship with that of heaven, it's a statement of coming under the rulership and order of the creator God Yahweh. In other words, Manasseh won't strive for chaos any longer but we'll try to reflect the reality of heaven on earth. Well, any final thoughts, Nick? Um, you know, I've been looking for an on-ramp for this statement. Um, you know, you've, you've mentioned, you know, that this is a, an Old Testament pseudepigrapha. Uh, but it's interesting. Charles Worth definitely, I mean, he's got it in volume two, right? But like, uh, what, Metzger and De Silva... Um, I mean, they they included in their works on the Apocrypha, um, the, uh, let's see, the, the Septuagint doesn't have it. Codex Alexandrinus has it in an appendix. Uh, if you're working with the, the first Vulgate that Jerome made, I don't think he included the Apocrypha, so it wouldn't be in there. But somehow it found its way later into... Uh, later editions of what became known as the Vulgate. Um, King James, 1611, I mentioned that. I double-checked my work. Prayer of Manasseh was included in the... Uh, there was a like an appendix section in the middle between the Old and New Testament Prayer of Manasseh's in there. It's just interesting, you know, it's like, how, how do we define this stuff, right? How do we... What's apocryphal? What's Old Testament pseudepigrapha? Whose list, whose standard are we using? It's just, it's interesting to me how these things kind of get categorized. Um, I think, if I understood you correctly, your definition was um, if the work is written or attributed in some way to a biblical character, like Manasseh here is supposed to be the spokesperson here. Right. Um, but there are other works like um, uh, Letter of Jeremiah or Baruch, which is um, written from the perspective of Jeremiah, which is considered apocryphal. I don't know. It's just it's such a weird thing to me, at least. It's with but, the um, uh, it's the pseudonymous characteristic, in addition to whether or not it was in the Septuagint, is another uh, category that scholars often look at when they're defining something as apocryphal or pseudepigraphal. I think Charlesworth was saying that. Uh, I can't remember if it was him or someone else I was reading, but uh, they were saying that. 
when books are considered apocrypha, um, it's meant to be uh, exclusive. Like there's a limited set that we should be calling apocrypha, and it's basically limited what's in the Septuagint. And the um, definition for the pseudepigrapha is it's meant to be an inclusive uh, category, meaning that there's a lot of things that can be just categorized as pseudepigrapha and and uh, has a more open, broader uh, umbrella in which it kind of catches more writings. And so that's that was a helpful statement I remember reading about how, what's the difference between apocrypha and pseudepigrapha. Mm-hmm. But your question, I think, uh, alludes to a similar question, which is, you know, how do you know what is um, inspired and authoritative uh, and or canonical? And those are all words with similar attributes, some overlap there, but they don't all mean the same thing. Well, I know it when I hear it. <laughs> uh, what about you? Any final thoughts for you? You know, the New Testament verse that stuck with me that uh, as I was reading, it's Mark 2.17. It says, In hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And you know, that's just such um, a core element of the gospel. I just, I get it. I get why the prayer of Manasseh continued to find favor generation after generation it just with the christian it just rings of the gospel and so uh, inspired or not it was well written and it's uh, worth being read so uh nick what do you think our next book should be i think we discussed um uh off air at least uh the book of habakkuk 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 sounds great <laughs> a little three chapter book in the old testament so awesome habakkuk will be next And I believe that brings us to our one-minute sermon. Sure does. One-minute sermon. So you you go first this time? That's that's right. So what's my song today, Nick? We're going back to the year that we were born, Alex, 1986. Wow. This this classic here. Bring me a higher love. Bring me a higher love. Whoa. (laughs) Bring me a higher love. Where's that higher love I keep thinking of? Steve Winwood's Higher Love, Alex. Classic. And so <laughs> 60 seconds are going to go on the clock here um, as soon as I get to that. You are getting some extra time to think about it. <laughs> One minute on the clock. Here we go. And go. If we're going to talk about a higher love, then we have to go to the Apostle John, brother of James, son of Zebedee, because his gospel contains the word love more than all the other gospels combined, and his epistles as well. And so we see there that he records Jesus giving his disciples a new commandment, that they love one another even as he has loved them, and that includes sacrificial love, a higher love, a love that is aimed towards the best for the other person, even if it means sacrifice of yourself. And his epistle, 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16 says, No greater love has a man for someone else than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus called his disciples his friends as well. It says that when the world sees the way you love each other, they will know that I have sent you, that you are my disciples. 
And that is the heart of evangelism, the heart of the gospel, and the heart of the church. That is a higher love. Nice. <laughs> Did I come in under time? Oh, yeah. You, yeah, you had one second to spare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, we must be on the same wavelength today because um, your song today is... I'm, I'm so in love with you. Whatever you want to do is all right with me. That's uh, Al Green, Let's Stay mm. Together. That's actually uh, Aaron and I's uh, wedding song that we danced to. Nick, you were the officiant for that wedding. You were there. That's right. So give us a <laughs> one-minute sermon on Al Green's Let's stay together. Boy, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Starting, oh yeah, I haven't told you when to start. Starting now. <laughs> uh, let's see. The uh, Let's stay together. You know what? Let's go to Song of Solomon for this one, right? That, that kind of has that feel to it, where I am my beloved and my be- I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. That statement is made a couple times in Song of Solomon. Set me as a seal on your heart is what eight verse six. I mean that's that's what's at the core of Song of Solomon. There is a reading of Song of Solomon very quickly that um, you have the lead up to the marriage chapters one through four, and then chapter five things kind of take a, a downward turn and there's turmoil and conflict in the relationship. But then you have I think at the end where they come back together and they reaffirm their love. They say, essentially, let's stay together. I'm so in love with you, right? Uh, yeah, that's there's your Sunday evening Song of Solomon sermon. <laughs> Time. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Song of Solomon. I, I was thinking um, more along the lines of, like, Christ and the church, his bride, and, like, staying together. That's where I, start, that's where I thought first, but then I... Got to go that next level. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You did push it to the next level. You didn't take the easy way out, Nick. You did not go uh, for the intermediate level one-minute sermon. You kicked it up a notch to the advanced one-minute sermon. That's tough. That's right. That's tough. That's right. There you go. If it was one-minute Halo, sermon, you folks. turned it on legendary mode. That's what I'm That's saying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All uh, right. Well, good job. One-minute sermons. There we are. Uh for the audience, for their benefit. So next time we will cover uh, chapter one of Habakkuk. And uh, in the meantime, uh, what do we have as homework for our audience, Nick? Well, if they want to dig back into the archives, they can go either into the Google Play Music Store or into the iTunes Store and search Swordplay. You'll find the uh, past episodes that Alex and I have done on various books of the Bible and some apocryphal works. And uh, you can download those episodes to your particular device, take them with you wherever you go. Uh, you can leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast. Share it on social media. That'll also help us get the word out uh, about the podcast as well. And if people have a question, Alex. Yeah, email me at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, Swordplay podcast at gmail.com and we appreciate you listening studying your bible stay in the word be encouraged encourage one another uh, daily as long as it is called today thanks for tuning in to another episode of swordplay swordplay